Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I'm your host, Jonas Aller, and today I am joined by Sean Luke. Many of you may have heard of him. He has done a lot of work with Eric Ybarra, and he has his own channel called Anglican Aesthetics which is very, very good. Um, before we get into the episode, though, I do want to just mention that I have a Locals, um, and the Locals account is called Mere, Cathli- Mere Catholicity. It's a place where you can join with other like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ right. to move forward in the faith, joining together across denominational barriers to become Mere Catholics together. That being said... I'm happy to introduce Sean Luke. Brother, thank you so much for for joining me today. Um, Would you be able to just give a a brief introduction about yourself so that people know who you are? For sure. And yeah, thank you for having me. Is my camera freezing up there or is it showing up? Yeah, it's kind of glitching out a little bit. Okay. Well, we'll we'll hope it resolves itself. But yeah, so... Worst case, yeah. Worst case, we can hear you. Okay, great. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, my name's Sean Luke. Um, as Jonah said, I, I run the channel Anglican Aesthetics, uh, with the goal to seeing the beauty of Christ from an Anglican theological perspective. Uh, I recently just finished my Masters of Divinity and Masters of Systematic Theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, yeah, and with an interest in theological aesthetics and ecumenicism. Uh, you know, I, my heart is for the unity of the church and to resource the great tradition um, to heal some of the wounds that have emerged over the past 500 and even 1,000 years. Right. Yeah, well, that, that's awesome, man. That's that's exactly what my whole channel is about. That's exactly what my, my ministry has all emphasized is this mere Catholicity trying to fight for that unity. Um, I was telling uh, a friend of mine the other day that, you know, John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ is... I think something we as Christians should regularly meditate on, regularly just pray over, and recognize that the unity of the church is something very much worth fighting for. And so, yeah, I really appreciate you not just coming on to talk with me, but the fact that you are engaging with Rome and the East and discussing many of these important issues instead of just kind of leaving them and separating. So uh, as, as we get into the episode, I, I want to just start by kind of asking you your story. How I, I know you're an Anglican like me. Um, how did you arrive at the conclusion that that Anglicanism is, is, is the place to be? Yeah, so that came over a process. I During my undergrad at Wheaton College, uh, I started attending an Anglican church with my wife um, and we were discipled there for a while. The, the short of it is, as I attended, I figured I ought to know what Anglicanism is. <laughs> um, and that had me reading the Church Fathers. Uh, and I quickly realized that their vision of the Church was very different than what I had come to believe when I became a Christian at 16 um, from Evangelical or even Reformed Baptist circles. Uh, the, the church fathers are Episcopal in their nature. They have a high view of the apostolic teaching, which we'll, we'll get into. Um, and their, their view of the visible church is a lot higher than what you'll, you'll hear in many Protestant circles. So that 
compelled me towards a high view of the church. Uh, and I wrestled my second year of seminary between Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism and eventually landed on Anglicanism as the best fit with uh, the, the church Catholic. Hmm. So what, what was the, I'm always curious because I think a lot of people who do become Anglicans, oftentimes they, the first thing that happens is they go, oh man, the Episcopacy, I think that this is correct. And then from there, it kind of narrows things down to either Anglican, Rome, Orthodoxy, maybe some Lutheran yeah. places. But um, myself, having kind of gone into re researching Rome and some of the claims of Rome, I, I came up with, with some uh, uh, difficulties there. But I'm curious what, what led you away from Rome towards Anglicanism? What were some of the prime prime reasons? Yeah, so for me, it came down to magisterial infallibility, papal infallibility. Um, I, I'm just really convinced that Rome has actually contradicted itself on yeah. many occasions, and worse still, has contradicted the apostolic teaching. So in Dei Verbum, the, the very short version of this is that in Dei Verbum, the magisterium is claimed to be an expositor of the apostolic teaching. She never adds to the apostolic teaching. If that's the case, there should be a logical or clear connection between what Rome teaches and what the deposit of faith has as it's been uh, transmitted to us from the apostles. I've come to think that there are significant contradictions between what Rome has come to teach uh, and what the apostles taught the church. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get into that a bit when we kind of get into your your idea of, of the sola apostolica. But maybe before I kind of move us in that direction, um, obviously Eastern Orthodoxy is a thing too. So what 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 yeah. held you back from Orthodoxy? Was it the similar claims to a kind of infallibility within the church, or what? Were yes. there different reasons yep. there. No, and that that so it's exactly that the similar claims to ecclesial infallibility. Um, I you know I do think church and church councils can err uh, and have erred as, as Luther, you know, eloquently says, I think. Yeah. Um, and my main problem also with the East is that in some ways they really don't know quite what they believe <laughs> on a number of issues. They're very, they're very vague uh, about what they believe. And when it comes down to the central issue of the filioque, uh, I am convinced that the Latin tradition is correct. Uh, and that the the fathers from Athanasius to Augustine taught the filioque, even even if one wants to say it was, uh, you know, unwisely added into Nicaea, uh, I think it's true. And so the East's claim that it's heresy uh, can't be the case, given that sure. it really was taught very widely um, through through both East and West. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I would tend to agree with that as well. Um, so so let, let's talk a little bit about this issue of authority, because a lot of the re I mean, I would say the reason that we are Protestants still has to do with the question of authority. A lot of it really does boil down to that issue. So what what are you proposing? Or maybe I, I should say the Protestants have proposed sola scriptura as being kind of this this way to root the authority of the the Christian tradition, the trajectory of the church in the word of God. 
And obviously today we have a lot of different opinions as to exactly what that means. And, you know, some will take it to almost to a, a new descriptura, a solo scriptura kind of view, which is not what the reformers intended. But I think I lost you there, brother. Wait for you to pop back on here. Sip some beer. Okay, I think you're back in the stream. Yeah, sorry about that. My no browser shut down. Anyway, yeah, so yeah, um, the you got cut off at Nuda Scriptura. Okay, yeah, I, I, I was just saying, I, th I think the Protestant tradition, obviously, they have the idea of sola scriptura trying to root the, the, the apostolic deposit as chiefly being found in scripture, and that tradition's relationship to that apostolic deposit of faith is really what Rome claims to be uh, just an expositor of, of that, that apostolic deposit. But clearly, sola scriptura can sometimes get a little bit fuzzy. It seems to me you're proposing this idea of sola apostolica. Would you would you mind just kind of unpacking what you yes. mean by that? Yeah. So the claim of sola apostolica is this idea that the sole infallible rule and norm of doctrinal authority is what I call the apostolic teaching. Now, the apostolic teaching I want to emphasize is the unity of the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, that the prophets being a cipher for the Old Testament, uh, because in first century Judaism, as we'll unpack, the term the prophets uh, was often used as a synodoke for the entire Old Testament. And as the church, we believe that the prophetic teaching was pointing somewhere, it was pointing to Christ. And so the apostolic teaching, the apostles as the ministers of Christ, consummated the prophetic teaching in their teaching. They brought it to fulfillment in their teaching. So the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the prophets and the apostles in the their integral unity is the sole infallible source of authority for the church. And that leads to a doctrine of prima scriptura, um, which is what I prefer over sola scriptura. Typically with sola scriptura, uh, even in its most nuanced accounts, I deeply appreciate Appreciate, for instance, Gavin Ortland's account of Sola Scriptura. Yeah. Um, I think it it's very classical um, in terms of Scripture being the sole infallible rule and, and norm, but not the only rule and norm of doctrinal authority in the church. Um, my my problem with even a refined uh, doctrine of Sola Scriptura is actually interestingly what Johann Gerhard, who was a Lutheran theologian, pointed out that in the first century. Uh, we wouldn't believe in Sola Scriptura uh, because we'd be sitting at the feet of the apostles uh, in their teaching. So Sola Scriptura at its best is a historical measure taken because the apostles have passed away. Well, if that's the case, then we actually have a more precise principle of authority that we can articulate as Protestants, which I think is the apostolic teaching. I think we can actually show this from Scripture in the Church Fathers. Great. Yeah, that, that's that's wonderful. So with this kind of idea, the idea of of the infallible source of authority, 
expands from just scripture to also include the, the teaching office of the apostles, which would have included their oral teachings and stuff. Correct. Is that correct. Yep. Yeah. And importantly, it's whenever they intended to teach, whenever they intended right, to right. instruct the church, you'll get some objections, both interestingly in Protestant and I've found some Roman Catholics, um, though I don't know that the magisterium would take issue with this. Um, namely, they'll point to Peter and they'll say, well, Peter, Galatians, he had his conflict with Paul and Peter was teaching something different. My response to that is to say he wasn't teaching at all, actually, in Galatians. Uh, he was living inconsistently with the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul Paul's objection is. Um, so he wasn't intending to teach the church. He was living hypocritically with what he taught. Got it. Got it. So so what would you say then? So we, we have these these two... I don't want to say two sources. We have the the written tradition. We have the oral tradition of the apostles. And I think you've referred to, or maybe I, I think you might have been even quoting uh, Gerhard when you said this, but the idea that the written tradition becomes the, um, what was it, accidental form of the apostolic yeah. deposit, I think is what yeah. you said. Yeah, yeah. and I, th I think that's really good. And so what what is the the role of this oral tradition in all that? And did in other words, because we recognize the oral tradition as truly having an authority, yeah. do we put more stock then into some of the oral traditions that have been handed yes. down in the church? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think so. So Gerhard's argument is that uh, scripture is the external or accidental form that the word of God takes. So the word of God is that which God reveals of himself in the midst of creation and his chief or primary creaturely sources through which he does that are the prophets and the apostles with of course the lord jesus christ being both himself the prophet and the apostle the chief prophet and the chief apostle as the eternal son of god um so the word of god uh whether written or spoken is god's self-revelation delivered through his elected creaturely agents uh and the written word then is the reification of the word of God. It's, it's the form that the word of God takes in history as it's handed down. Now, what does that do with certain oral traditions? Well, what we have to ask then of every oral tradition is, do we have good reason to think it goes back to the apostles? I think we do for some of them, actually. Uh, so for the Episcopate, and this was one of the things that convinced me to be an Anglican, uh, Ignatius of Antioch sat at the feet of John. And when he writes to Polycarp about the office of bishop, there is no dispute about the bishop's authority. That's not something that Polycarp or Ignatius disagree on. So what you'll often hear is that Ignatius, well, he was just more high church. You know, he, he just had a higher ecclesiology than everyone else. Uh, but the problem is that everyone he writes to never pushes back on him for his view of the office of the bishop. And he he seems to claim it's from John. Irenaeus, of course, tells us that certain bishops were actually constituted as bishops by the apostles. Now, if that's the case, then the episcopate is apostolic and intended uh, to carry on by the direct intent of the apostles. So that, that seems then to hold weight as being a divine institution from God. Sure. So I, I can see maybe some of the, the pushback on this being, 
okay, well, who's to say what goes back to the apostles yes. and, and what doesn't? So yep. how, how would you just on the ground in practice, yep. how do how do we go about discerning these things without having to be like an absolute professional historian to do so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the, I think there are two two sort of things to say here. So for the, the lay person, I think it is important that as Anglicans, we have a very high view of the consent of the church through time. Uh, we think that has evidential weight high evidential weight so that if the consent of the church were were wrong one would need a really really good reason very strong reason to overturn that consent and the reason we we attribute this high weight to the consent of the church is actually deeply theological we think the church is united to christ and therefore participates in the mind of christ and so her appointed teachers were commissioned and gifted by the spirit to exposit the apostolic teaching share in the mind of Christ in a particular way. Mm. Now, if they're all consenting to a given doctrine, uh, and that we can see that consent through time in the church's historic structures, that gives the layperson a very good reason without having to make a historic case uh, for the apostolicity of the episcopate. Now, right. for those of us then who want to interrogate that view and say, okay, is that true? Like with any question, you will have to do deeper work, but Fortunately, within the you don't have to actually survey all of the church fathers. It's actually in the Apostolic Fathers and in Irenaeus as well that you can find very strong evidence uh, for the episcopate going back to the apostles. So, so you don't actually have to do a whole lot of work in church history to see that. Right, right. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So let, let's take an issue that... Um an issue that's very, very um, popular to, to be talked about right now, especially in online circles, because I think it's pertinent to this. Take something like Nicaea 2, where you do have a large consent regarding Nicaea 2 between both the West and the East. A lot of Anglo-Catholics, including myself, I'm compelled to believe that there is a, a proper way to, um, to affirm some of the teachings of, of the Seventh Council. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think Gavin Ortland makes a great point that yeah. this one is really hard to trace back to the apostles. Yes. So in, in a case like this, where you do have the voice of the church, so to speak, consenting to this, yeah. but you also have a hard time drawing the lines all the way to, to the apostolic uh, teaching, which side yeah. do we fall on? Is this kind of more of a, hey, whatever floats your boat, man, or is it a little bit yeah. more nuanced than that? So this is where I think um, John of Damascus's argument from Holy Icons is actually really important. So it's really important, first of all, historically, the argument, but that the argument works, I think, is also important. So what I'd want to do then as an Anglican is then say the theological reasoning for the use of icons and the veneration of icons, the limited veneration of icons it, with, right. within due limits, uh, actually has really good theological rationale through the incarnation. So I'd actually then want to point to how those arguments actually do show that by good and necessary consequence from the Christ event, the veneration of icons follows. So we're not we're not totally left in the dark. Now, I do think one of the complicated things about Nicaea too is the anathematizing, as yeah. Gavin Orton points out, of people who don't use icons. Now, that doesn't, if I'm remembering the text of Nicaea 2 rightly, that features, I think, after the main body of right. the text and what's promulgated there. So 
you can, I think you can make a plausible case that what is ecumenically received there is the veneration of icons and that should be retained, uh, which is why I'm more of a high church Anglican. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that the, anathemati- the, the anathematizing of people who don't use icons, that's problematic, but in, in the practice of Rome and much of the East, they seem to implicitly concede that. <laughs> uh, I don't right, know that right. that many Roman Catholics would want to say someone like Gavin is going to hell because he doesn't use icons, you know, or because he doesn't federate right. icons. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really good. So it's it seems to me that you're kind of what you're trying to get at is the idea that it's not so much that we can trace the veneration of icons all the way back to the apostolic mm-hmm. deposit. But the arguments that are used to arrive at a plausible reason theologically for veneration is rooted back in the apostolic deposit, right. in the incarnation, etc. And so because right. of that, we have good reason to accept the theological teachings of, of this council. Right. And, and this is where Westminster, it's basically applying Westminster's view of scripture but to the apostolic teaching itself. So Westminster wants to say we should retain those things that are believed and either explicitly taught in scripture or implied by good and necessary consequence. I'd want to say we can actually do that with the apostolic teaching as a whole. Right. Yes. That's really, really good. So, so one of the things I do want to get into on the, on this stream as well, because I think it's important is okay. Let's let's say that that Rome and the East are like fine. You make a fair point about you know sola apostolica, but you can't claim to be one holy Catholic Church when you're not jurisdictionally united um, to to this the, the Pope or to the patriarchs. Yeah. What is your what is your way of approaching? Because when you do kind of take this authority away from an infallible magisterium or an infallible church and root it more in the in the apostolic deposit it does lead the lead to the question of what is the foundation of the visible church if it isn't union with the pope or union with a patriarch so how do you approach that issue yeah that's a great question well with the east as kind of a preliminary i'd want to point out it's a little bit more complicated with the east because in the 1920s uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople did think Anglican orders were valid. Now, what what broke down conversation between Anglicanism and the East was, unfortunately, the ordination of women in the 1970s in the Episcopal Church. That that was sort of the thing that severed the possibility of communion. But up to that point, it seemed like the East and the Anglican communion were actually moving towards full communion. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, when the East claims that it, that Anglicanism is somehow new or or something like that, uh, that's that's very inconsistent with their own history. Uh, that that doesn't really make sense of how the East has historically viewed the Church of England uh, and the descendants of the Church of England. Now, with Rome, it's a little bit more complicated, but Rome recognizes the East as uh, at least having valid apostolic orders. Uh, having valid sacraments by virtue of having valid apostolic succession. So it seems to me that if Rome admits that the East has valid sacraments and valid holy orders, on that same basis, they should actually accept Anglican orders as valid. And in fact, anyone who has apostolic succession 
at least minimally through presbyterial succession, I would say. And of course, I think that's a defective but legitimate mode of succession, um, even if it's so it's not ideal, but it, it is a legitimate mode of succession. There is historical precedent for that. Uh, right. They should, on the same grounds that they recognize the East is valid, recognize other traditions that have apostolic succession as valid. So the, the foundation of the visible church, it seems to me, is, is threefold. There's what the reformers taught, which is the right administration of the sacrament, the right preaching of the word. That's true. But then as a high church Anglican, I'd add an apostolic succession, because that seems to be uh, rooted in the, the firmly in the, in the tradition of the church. Right. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've, I've often, often pointed out that I think one of the problems with, with Rome's claim and even the East claim, which kind of root the visible unity of the church in particular patriarchs, is like the office of Pope or the office of, uh, you know, Bishop of Constantinople. Th those, are, those are offices, but those are not ontological orders that are different yeah. from any other bishop, right? Yep. And so to say that a jurisdictional reality supersedes the sacramental reality that all bishops yeah. share in common seems to undermine the, the foundations of the church, which really should be rooted, I think, in the sacramental efficacy yes. through apostolic succession rooted in Christ. Um, yeah. do, you, do you want to comment on that? I, I Yeah, I think that's well said. It's important to note that some of the patriarchs and their their jurisdiction some of that develops through time and church history so it's it's not a bad thing to have an archbishop we of course we do um, but the the arch the office quote unquote of archbishop is a development and it's a necessary development as the church grows but it's not you know there's no holy order of archbishop um, and as such, there's no holy order of patriarch. Rather, patriarch is a subset within the order of the episcopate. Um, if that's the case, then it can't be that union with a patriarch is what establishes the visible church if we all admit, and I think we have to, that the the sort of function of a patriarch is a man-made, spirit-guided, but man-made development. Right, right, yeah. And it kind of, that kind of just ties right back to what you were talking about with this, this Sola Apostolica. We can trace the episcopacy back to the time of the apostles, but we can't trace the very particular patriarchs and the particular regions in which they're overseeing as a right. biblical necessity of the essence of the church. Um, so organizationally, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but it can't be definitional to what it means right. to be the church. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... So I want to I want to kind of follow up and get a little bit into obviously we have the idea of the sola apostolica, but in order to affirm that we must first reject the claims of Rome and that of the East. And so I'd, I'd be curious to know what in particular, um, maybe an example, maybe we can focus on Rome in this episode, uh, but specific examples where you believe the magisterium proves itself to be um, an invalid or, or um, wrong way to, to view the, the authority of the church? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great question. So I'd want to, man, trying to narrow, narrow that down. <laughs> so I'll, I'll focus on a few issues that don't exhaust the issue. Um, and I'll try to work sort of historically back in time. So um, 
my first issue would be with something like Dignitatis Humanae, right? Uh, where the death penalty is seemingly declared as inhumane, seemingly declared as immoral. That, and, and the basis for declaring it immoral is the alleged increased understanding of the dignity of human beings. That given an increase of the understanding of how precious humans are, uh, there's a claim that therefore the death penalty is, is illicit. That stands in very clear contradiction to, uh, for example, Exerge Domine, where one of the theses of Luther that's condemned uh, is that it's the will, Luther argued that it's always contrary to the will of the spirit to burn heretics, at least at that point he did. Hmm. Now he, he, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, reneges on that opinion later in his life. But um, at that point, he argued that it was against the will of the spirit to burn heretics, and Rome declares that as illegitimate. The context of that statement is Jan Hus, uh, where Luther argued that the church erred in condemning Jan Hus to be burned burned at the stake. Uh, so Rome is clearly asserting an authority to, to do things like that in Exerge Domine. Uh, you also have it asserting authority to do things like that in Unum Sanctum, when it claims the capacity to wield the temporal sword. Uh, and of course, in the commissioning of the Crusades, that's that that seems to be another instance where um, a form of capital punishment is actually authorized by Rome. So you work further back then to Apostolica Cori, where Anglican orders are declared invalid. Now, you know, interestingly, the reason I think this actually counts against magisterial infallibility is because the argument in Apostolica Cori just does not work. Uh, it, it is not a coherent argument. So essentially, um, the Pope's argument at the time was that Anglicans didn't accept the Mass as a sacrifice and didn't ordain priests to that end to offer the Mass as a sacrifice. And that's actually historically false. Um, it, it's very clear that in history, you read Perkins, for example, you read William Whitaker, uh, there are several senses in which the mass is affirmed to be a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise on Thanksgiving, but even a sacrifice that affects the forgiveness of sins through the participation in bread and wine. So, you know, and if Rome wants to then say, well, it's not a propitiatory sacrifice, the problem then becomes that in the earliest liturgies of the church, like Hippolytus's apostolic tradition, Rome's, the orders that precede the, the, the form of orders that Rome uses today didn't ordain priests to offer the mass as a propitiatory sacrifice either. And we actually don't see that ubiquitously in the church fathers. You see that in some fathers, um, but you in other fathers, uh, you see this idea that participation in the elements uh, grants a participation in the forgiveness of sins, which is exactly what Anglicans hold. Uh, so then, you know, that, that argument uh, by which they invalidate Anglican orders would actually invalidate their own orders <laughs> if they were consistent. Of course, they can't do that. Uh, yeah. And if that's an allegedly infallible judgment, but it rests on a very fallible, bad argument, I think that counts against apostolic infallibility. So then you move even further back uh, to issues of uh, the system of merit for example, declared at the Council of Trent, where baptism removes both the eternal debt and the temporal debt of punishment 
and puts you in a state of grace by virtue of participation in the merits of Christ. But then if you commit a mortal sin, when you go to confession and receive absolution, you're put back into a state of grace, but you might still have temporal debt. And the problem with this account, and as as even in the East, the East would would agree with this, is that this, this system just does not go back to the apostles. If God could absolve the temporal debt of punishment in baptism, uh, if that's the case, why couldn't he do it upon repentance? Well, of course he could. Uh, and Rome admits he could, and that's the foundation of the system of indulgences, that the church dispenses the merits of the saints, which covers temporal debt. And Trent, the Council of Trent is very clear that the works of satisfaction imposed for sin are both medicinal and punitive. Uh, they're, they're not just meant to remediate the soul, which as Protestants we would agree with, the, the East would agree with those sorts of measures, uh, but it's they're imposed to satisfy the temporal debt of punishment. That system is utterly absent in the first five centuries of the church and utterly absent from the New Testament. So there are a number of other reasons and a number of other sort of doctrinal pieces we could go through. Uh, but those are some examples, I think, of, of clear cases where Rome is either contradicting the apostolic teaching or flatly making stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I Yeah. It, and it's, it's, it's quite remarkable to me how clear some of these things seem to be in terms of the contradiction and yeah. yet how... <laughs> how much people who are committed to Roman Catholicism still try to find ways to defend them. I, I, I'm curious. I mean, obviously people have reasons that they, that they would defend these things, but have you heard any arguments that are compelling enough to reconsider whether or not these are actual contradictions? Yeah. Yeah. So not, I haven't heard compelling arguments and there was a time where I really wanted to, you know, that I was really drawn uh, yeah. to Rome. Uh, but no, I haven't. So take something like Apostolic Akurai. The, the, a common response you'll receive, like two sort of paths Roman Catholics will try to go down, is they'll either try to defend the theological argument. So they'll try to say, well, no, the Church Fathers did offer the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice. Uh, and on that level, then you meet Roman Catholics on the history. And I just think it's really clear that not all of the Fathers thought of the Mass that way. Uh, and on the second front, you'll have this claim that, well, the argument can be completely wrong, but so long as the, the declaration, that, that's what stands. When the Pope says, I define, I decree, I declare, thus and such, like, that's what stands. That's the bit that's infallible, and the argument might be very fallible. Well, then the problem with that is that in Dei Verbum, right, the magisterium is always claimed to be an expositor of the apostolic teaching. So all of the reasoning of the Pope in something like Apostolica Cori is designed to show why the Pope's declaration or why the magisterium's judgment follows from the apostolic teaching. Right. If that reasoning doesn't work, then there isn't a clear link between the declaration of the magisterium and the apostolic teaching. And without that clear link, the, the claim of Dei Verbum, such that the magisterium is only an expositor, falls to the ground. Yeah, to totally, totally agreed with that. That's yeah. Um, I, I do, I do want to just take the conversation 
backwards just just for a minute here and and we'll get wrapping up here in a little bit but um one of the things i wanted to ask about this idea of sola apostolica has more to do with we were kind of focusing kind of on a broad catholic church scale but if we kind of bring it down to like the individual i think one of the comforts that roman catholics claim to have is that you know if i have a question about what scripture says i can just turn to the teaching of the magisterium and it, it's settled whereas when you get into protestantism i think admittedly there are a little bit more mm -hmm. divergent views on certain points of doctrine yes. some of them more significant than others and rome will point to this as being kind of well you guys are basically reducing yourselves to a kind of relativism when it comes to doctrine where hey we're all part of the one church but it's your truth my truth man kind of idea yeah. which i don't think obviously it is that way exactly but i think it's a fair critique that yeah. doctrine can sometimes become uh it seems like a a, a almost a buffet table at times yep. um so how would you respond to that objection uh posed by rome yeah i, I think it's a fair critique of sort of modern evangelicalism um you know the classical vision of Protestantism as a reformed Catholic movement is very different than modern evangelicalism. The original vision of Protestants was the recovery of the Catholic faith, the, right. the purification of the Catholic faith, and such that the Protestants saw themselves as in deeper continuity with the church fathers than Rome was. That vision of what the church is and what doctrine is actually provides a, a stable, something of a stable anchor, I think, uh, in the following ways. Most of the early Protestants, actually all of the magisterial Protestants, accepted the, the Nicene Creed. They accepted the Apostles' Creed. They accepted the symbols of the church that really were ecumenical, uh, that were dispersed through the church because the, the hope was that they would be in continuity with the early church. They would recover Catholicity with the church. I think that actually does help with many problems. It doesn't solve every problem. And I do think you know, some of those things about the state of Protestantism do trouble me still, uh, but it helps solve, for instance, how do, you, how do you identify the foundation of the faith well, you look at both the New Testament and how the fathers have interpreted the New Testament through history, and we actually come to a pretty consistent understanding. Uh, that's So what you'll often hear as mere Christianity uh, held by Protestants across denominations reflects some of those initial uh, ecumenical consensuses. So most Protestants will hold to things like the Nicene Creed. Most of them will hold to uh, salvation through Christ alone. Most of them will hold to a robust doctrine of the Trinity. I think we ought to, to do things like that. We ought to be oriented towards Catholicity uh, and towards Protestantism as a recovery of the Catholic faith rather than as sort of a, uh, doing its own thing. Uh, yeah. And that's sort of the point of departure, I'd say, for magisterial Protestants. And as much as I love Gavin Ortland, I, I I appreciate that brother so so much. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be a point of departure between magisterial Protestants and I would say Baptists, uh, yeah. that we you know magisterial Protestants really do want to seek to be in continuity with the the majority of the church through history, 
And we would right. argue then that, that we actually are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agreed. Yeah. I'm always amazed. I, I, lo I love Gavin Ortland. people like him and Matthew Barrett. I'm always so surprised to find out they're Baptists. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But yeah, ama amazing Catholic brothers uh, in, in, in faith. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. One of the things I think, uh, Francis Hall and his Anglican dogmatics, yes. I don't know if you've, you've read them, yep. but, yep. um, he speaks about the church in there and he uses the word infallibility yes. in conjunction with the church, yeah. but he, he uses it in a kind of derivative that the church possesses a kind of derivative infallibility. Yes. Are you comfortable with using that kind of language when, when describing the, the authority of the church? Yeah, I, you know, I'm still, what I'd want to say is that the church has a strong evidential, a very, very strong evidential uh, authority, a derivative authority, and an authority that really should actually compel us towards accepting, you know, the consensus of the church. My problem with Francis Hall is is that, you know, he's situated in the Oxford movement. Right. Um, and with the Oxford movement, with someone like Francis Hall, who does remain Anglican, but then, of course, Cardinal Newman, who famously becomes Roman Catholic, there were, I think, concessions to Rome that probably shouldn't have been made. I think that's actually one of them. So Rome in Dei Verbum, shortly after, Francis Hall writes his dogmatics about 50 years after, um, I think 50 years or so, um, they concede that the magisterium, and in, in some ways that actually is a consistent concession, that the magisterium's authority is derivative from what the apostles have taught. Um, so they actually seem to actually, they seem to agree with that. Uh, so I, I don't think Francis Hall is laying out a consistently Protestant vision right. there. Uh, even though I would agree that the church should exercise a very strong authority over the conscience of the believer, such that you only go against a consensus when you have really compelling reason to do that, and I, I can't think of a time when, you know, when we should do that, where there's a genuine consensus and the consensus is wrong. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I have used the idea of infallible, infallibility, infallibility being both inerrant, inerrant, inherent to inherent. the scriptures and derivative in the case of the church before. But I have found that it does lead to, uh, I think, a very fair question, which is, okay, what then is the fundamental difference between your view and the view of Rome? Yep. And I think it kind of does toe the line where it's like, well, it's kind of a distinction without a difference at that yes. point. So I think yep. shying away from using the word infallible in relation to the church is helpful in really emphasizing what we as Protestants are trying to um, maintain with regard to strip scripture and the apostolic deposit. Um, right. Because I think what, what we want to maintain is that the apostolic teaching can always judge what comes after. It always stands over and above what comes after. And with prima scriptura as affirming scripture as the direct written embodiment of the apostolic teaching, we want to affirm that scripture always holds the tradition to account. It, it can always essentially in, interrogate the tradition in a way that the tradition cannot interrogate scripture or the apostolic teaching. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. I, t I totally agree with that. And I think too, we, we need to recognize that there's almost, I think, and, and it, it almost is, is kind of a confusing idea because Rome wants to say, 
God is so powerful that he is spiritually preserving this apostolic deposit through the magisterium. But I kind of want to turn to that and say, God is, is so great that he's preserving the apostolic deposit without a need for any, any yeah. one particular office to be infallible. Like yep. God is doing that through his church just fine. And we don't need to root that in a very particular place or particular yeah. office uh, to recognize that the things the apostles said, things they wrote down in scripture are going to be passed down faithfully uh, by the church. You know, the church, as Paul says, is a pillar and foundation of truth. And that yeah. does need to be taken very seriously, but I don't think it necessarily leads to um, an infallible magisterium. So, Right. Yeah. God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's right. <laughs> and that's, yeah. I mean, that's an incredible thing. To, even, you know, I, it, it's an incredible thing to think through that God can, in the midst of human weakness, preserve his truth absolutely. You know, so we don't need to affirm, for example, that the apostles were sinless to affirm that they taught infallibly in all that they taught. I don't see why we would need, <laughs> like what, why there would be a theological rationale to say that the church needs to be infallible uh, for us to trust that God has preserved the infallible teaching of the apostles through time. It's enough for us to know, I think, that the church has done so, and we can actually see that compellingly in history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, to, to kind of bring things to, to a bit of a close now, I, I would just ask, obviously you mentioned at the beginning that, that you're, you're very dedicated to the, the unity of the church and, and seeing yeah. that unity brought to fruition, and that's a huge passion of mine as well. What would you say are some of the things that Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox can do uh, right now in the way of dialogue yeah. to, to help progress that? Um, yes. Yeah. That's a great question. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm working on what I hope will become a first book. <laughs> um, and part of the vision in that book is to, to see Protestants at least in our circles, because of course I'm situated within Protestantism, right. is to see us work towards establishing more links of full communion with each other. And what that would entail uh, is altar and pulpit fellowship and the recognition of each other's orders. So for example, the ACNA right now has actually full communion with the NALC, the North American Lutheran Church. Uh, they're Episcopal in structure, even though they abide by the Augsburg Confession. Now, whatever flaws you find with the NALC and the ACNA, and they're, they're there, right? We don't agree on ordination. The NALC is broadly egalitarian. So that's the problem, I think. Um, but that model of having full communion an altar and pulpit fellowship, I think that actually should be more of a priority to us. So over and against, and again, I don't want to bash Gavin, uh, over and against a Baptist model uh, where, you know, the church can have many different expressions and that's okay. I would want to say it's actually probably not. And we actually probably should have a unified ecclesiology, even if we have different doctrinal like convictions on adiaphora. So, for instance, in Rome, you can have Jesuits and Thomists in full communion with each other. They are very different. <laughs> right. um, Thomists and Jesuits are as different as Calvinists and Arminians on the doctrines of grace. Um, and yet they have a mechanism by which they can have full communion. You find some of those same differences in the East 
there are Western right, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians uh, who hold to certain doctrinal beliefs, and some of them are even Augustinian in their outlook, right. uh, yeah. but can be in communion with other parts of the Eastern church that are generally more what we call synergistic. That's very interesting to me. I think among Protestants, we should actually probably work towards something like that, where we have full communion with each other, even though we might have different bodies unified around different particulars, we would still recognize each other's orders and sacraments and be in full communion. I think that's one thing we should do as Protestants. Now, I think with Rome, part of the what needs to happen, along both, of course, dialogue, ecumenical efforts, th those are important. I think more explicit debate and acknowledgement of the differences needs to happen, not with a view to saying that Rome is going to hell, because uh, we don't believe that. You know? right. um, but with a view to having the differences out on the table so that we can actually work towards rational discussion of them. We're at a unique point in history where we're not killing each other over these different right. right. You know, 400 years ago, it would have been dangerous for you know an Anglican to go to Rome or, or a Roman Catholic to go to England um, and to hash these things out. It, it could cost you your life. That's not true anymore. And that's, that actually gives us a unique opportunity to thoroughly debate and dialogue these, these issues out with each other in a way that wasn't possible uh, 400, 500 years ago. Now with the East, you know, I, I still have a lot of questions there because frankly, I, I don't actually understand why they're sectarian. <laughs> you know, so when I think about um, the basis of their claim that they're the one true church, I just don't understand, even from within their perspective, why that would be the case, other than, you know, bad blood historically, uh, other than just declaring the Filioque heresy, and maybe that's the rub for them. Uh, sure. I, I don't see why ecclesiologically they'd want to say the Rome isn't Rome isn't just an error; they're actually heretics and. Protestants aren't just an error. They're actually heretics. I don't understand quite the basis for, for that claim within within the East. Right. So I think there, uh, there needs to be more interrogation yes. of their doctrinal basis to declare other Christian groups as schismatics um, and as heretics. I think that would that would go a long way with, with respect to dialoguing with the East. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll leave my friend nameless because he wouldn't appreciate me mentioning him. Uh, but I was having a conversation with him. He's an Eastern Orthodox guy. And we were talking about like, why the Orthodox don't accept Anglo Catholics specifically. And we were comparing doctrine back and forth. And we kind of reached at the end of the day that really, besides me being a Western Christian, him being Eastern, we really don't disagree on yeah. anything. And yep. so it, the conversation concluded with him saying, yeah, I think we're just sectarian. Like, I don't, I don't really know why we, we wouldn't accept uh, Anglo-Catholicism yeah. as a valid form of orthodoxy. Because yep. I, I basically pointed out, like, Western Rite Orthodox, they actually have a right that's rooted in the Book of Common Prayer. Yep. Yep. And it's fundamentally nearly the same as a high church Anglo-Catholic. Yeah, so, yeah, I think... I think your your points are, are very good. Um, yeah. One final question. Um, 
And this is this is just kind of a fun one that I like to do at the end with with guests, especially if I haven't talked to them before. Um, I won't give you like a top three or whatever, but name a couple theologians and church fathers that you have really, really benefited from and have become very near and dear to your heart. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first one is Jonathan Edwards, actually. Mm. Um, so I read Edwards when I became a Christian at 16, 17, and I read his book, The End for Which God Created the World that completely changed the way i viewed creation because edwards has this beautiful view of creation as this emanation of the excellencies of god this this communication of god's beauty in all things and i don't know that he realized it that's actually the foundation for a sacramental worldview uh mm -hmm. this view of matter mattering uh, yes and edwards i think i think if he had understood you know anglicanism in the church of england a bit better you know he might have become an anglican <laughs> um so edwards has been deeply influential on my thought and he sparked this sort of interest in the theology of beauty for me uh, then going back further augustine has been very i mean you know just yeah. kind of a classic reformed i think influence he's been very very helpful for me um in clarifying the way I articulate reform. So I still count myself as part of the Reformed tradition. Um, yep. I'm a broadly Reformed Anglican, even though I'm not sure uh, those who abide by the Synod of Dort would count me as Reformed. Uh, <laughs> I think I, of all of those points, I think I only hold to unconditional election. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, um, Augustine has really helped refine my own thinking. And with him, actually, in his sort of stream of thinking, I would count Aquinas as part of that that stream of thought. Um, and then, you know, Ignatius has been yep. deeply influential with with his view of the episcopate yep. and his view of apostolic authority. So those would be the three: Ignatius of Antioch, um, you know, Augustine, and then Aquinas. That whole stream from Augustine to Aquinas, and yep. then Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, very, very similar to mine. Yeah, yeah, very, very cool. Well, Sean Luke, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to come and, and chat with me. Um, I wish you all the success with with the work you're doing, especially in the in this area of sola apostolica. I think it's got a a, a real potential to uh, further ecumenical dialogue between traditions and clarify really what we as Protestants mean when we when we say sola scriptura. Um, that's rooted in a robust Catholicity. So yeah, yeah, you, brother. yeah. Thank you, thank you for having me on, Jonah. And yeah, it's it's a joy to see what the Lord's doing doing in His church broadly. Amen.